we didn't bet the farm, right? Like we're okay. And that was really the thing. It's like, I mean, at, at some point the company only exists to provide fulfilling work for the people who work here. If the work's not fulfilling, I don't care about the product. It's not, it's, it's not important anymore. This is the Better Product original series sharing stories of big bets made in product. Did they pay off? Let's find out. By the way, um, some don't pay off and we just don't even hear about them. So even the ones that we see that don't pay off are still a part of somebody who's had some moderate success. And that's true today with our first big bet guest of Natalie Dangel of Wildbit. She's a co-founder and CEO with one bet in mind. You can grow a profitable company while prioritizing people. And Wildbit is behind popular products such as Beanstalk and Postmark. She also made another big bet. And that's by joining this company with her husband as her co-founder. We'll start the conversation at the beginning with Natalie sharing a snapshot of how Wildbit got started. I run the company with my husband and Chris started Wildbit when he was 20 years old doing brochure flash websites for those who know what flash is or remember it back in the day for nightclubs and restaurants and things like that. We got together a couple of years after that, been working on Wildbit together for the last 17 years. We went from kind of those brochure websites to doing a lot of client services work for social networks, bigger apps like that, and eventually evolved into building our own products. We've been only building for ourselves for the last, I want to say, 12 or 13 years where we've only had our own products. So we build... SaaS products for the most part, uh, supporting for a long time, we built products that supported software development teams and in, in doing their work better. That has since evolved as we've just grown up and evolved and realized that what we care deeply about is building a business that supports the humans inside the business and around the business. And so everything we do is thinking about how to use Wildbit as a tool to make people's lives better. That's just our priority and it allows us to build different products. And so we're, multi, we're a product agnostic company. We have multiple products, so that's the way we like to run. And we have currently a plan to really operationalize the ability for us to have multiple products at any given point in different stages of their lives. I'd like to understand a little bit more about that model. It's We've, we've had people on that have multiple products in a portfolio that are all kind of like around the same thing, but this seems a little bit different. There's Wildbit and then you spin up these different products. So give us a little brief understanding of how you spin up a product, like how you staff it, like who runs the product and like what your your and Chris's role is and all that. One of the most uh, interesting parts about where we are right now is we're taking this product agnostic thing and trying to operationalize it. So I can give some understanding of how we've done it in the past and then a little preview of how we're thinking about it in the future because we're kind of right in the thick of it, trying to understand how to make these things more uh, consistent and transparent. The way we've done it, forever is usually there's been an idea for something that we need ourselves. So Beanstalk was our first kind of commercially successful product. The way we got into product was making sure that, and this is what we do consistently, is making sure that every product idea gets full-time staffing immediately. So Beanstalk became successful because while we were a consulting company, we took folks out of consulting, right? Out of like hourly billing and put them full-time on the product to make sure that it wasn't always going to be put on the back burner, right? That it was given the, the necessary space to grow. And that's been a consistent trend. So every product we've built since then has had, at the we've always given it a dedicated team. Our track record is we get something up and running in three months. 
So every successful product we ever had, it was always three months. I don't know why it's that number. So now we're kind of like three months, it's gotta be three months. So we, we try to get something up and running pretty quickly. It, it, we create like a minimally, what we think is minimally necessary to prove the value. We don't necessarily go sell it right away at three months, but we get something up and running so we can see it. That's worked really well. But the, the challenges we've had with that model is it creates, it, it has created for us kind of separated teams. And I'm not loving that there's identity tied to those products. Oh, and on the other side of that is you have products that only certain people on the team know and that handcuffs them to it because one of the big things about product agnostic for us is that it allows employees to be able to move inside the company into others so they get new jobs theoretically right like you don't have to leave while but to work on something new and different and so if we had when we were having these kind of siloed only certain folks know how to work on beanstalk then it's really hard for them to move somewhere else because they always have to work on that so we're trying to solve some of these problems the biggest one i think to your question our attention, we haven't been able to really define well where how we as founders place attention on these things. And so it's kind of been hit or miss. So what we're going into is a more structured approach. We've created a kind of five-phase approach. We're calling it the five phases of innovation uh, inside Wildbit. And it's different stages of a product's life cycle. And it's you know starting with validation to maintenance mode, right? Like something that's just fully done. And there's you know kind of stages throughout that process. And each stage allows us to define a little bit more clearly how much money are we investing in it, whether or not it has to have any kind of metrics requirements or not. You know, in the phase one, you don't want to like burden it with things, you know, but you don't want to get into a phase three and have customers if you haven't validated that this is a thing we want to actually keep working on. So we're starting to operate. So I can't tell you it's like this solved thing, but we're spending a lot of time thinking about, you know, structurally how we do this. How do we give folks enough space to move around? So, you know, thinking about that. And right now we're in this kind of probably people commit to something for at least nine to 12 months. That's probably the minimum that we would have happen. And then we're looking at how much of the business should be spent in these other products. That's the big question I don't have an answer to yet. But the part we want to better understand is at Wildbit, for our future success, how do we prioritize how much of our mental space, our team space, right, is spent on current products that we know are commercially successful and the customers love versus greenfield stuff, you know, like things that we think are coming down in the future, and everything in between. And where I'd like to get to is a more calculated way. Like, let's say like I can put a number and say, you know, 30% of, of our time has to be spent on greenfield stuff and 40% on permanent, you know, our established products. And then the other 30%, right, math is, you know, on the middle stuff and those numbers are arbitrary. We're exploring that a little bit ultimately because I don't want to be stuck on one product. And so what we're doing is like starting to really collect ideas of what fits us and what what it, what excites us and how we can do that because we have these big products that have tens and tens of thousands of customers that like rely on it and they're great, but they can suck all the energy out of us if we let it. And so how do we make sure that we don't let that happen because we do want to innovate and create new things. Well, let's let's talk about some specifics there. You said you had a good track record, but I'm not I don't care about all your successes. Obviously, I'm going to pick the one that you've mentioned that was a challenge, which was Conveyor. So maybe we can start with Conveyor and then we can see how you're sort of evolving that and like what you've learned from Conveyor that you're applying to your next products that you're working on right now. And Conveyor, you were very transparent on on Twitter last year about what we debated before the show, what we call this. I'm going with the word sunsetting. You chose to do that last year. So 
Uh, let's back up a little bit and, and I'd love to dive a little bit more into some of the thoughts that you put out on Twitter about what went into that decision. What were some things that you learned? So maybe first, can you just give us a quick overview of what Conveyor you know, sought out to do? And then, and then we'll dive into to when you ultimately decided to end the project. We have a, a product, Beanstalk. It's our first commercially successful product, and it's a version control and deployments, first software development teams. And it came out in 2008, before GitHub, before like some of the stuff was in. And it was really big. It was really successful. And then for various, many, many different reasons, uh, you know, we ended up competing against these huge companies, GitHub, GitLab, right? Uh, just, just big, big, big companies. And we hit this inflection point where we're a small team very product heavy, like we're a product team. We're not a big marketing team. We're just developing marketing. And so we were looking at this product Beanstalk-ish and we kind of hit this wall where we knew in order to grow it, we had to compete very heavily against these big companies. And at that point, the way we saw it was either I'm fighting them for features or I'm going up market or I'm doing like sales things. And it's like, it was just all of the ways in which to, to keep growing felt very unlike us or things that we weren't interested in. And in a purely like, you know, emotional decision, almost we sat down, we just said, like, if we could build anything again, what would we build? Right? Like, if we could solve this problem again, how would we solve it? So at that point, Beanstalk was solving a problem that had been solved, Like we set out to solve a thing, right? But in eight years in technology, things move pretty quickly. And so like, it became a solved problem, we wanted to innovate. So Conveyor came out of this idea that like, I had these folks that I care very deeply about who weren't excited about the work anymore, who didn't feel like the way forward was going to be a product way, a way that in which we felt joy in, in building and changing. And so that we can do some, we can do whatever we want. This is wild, but what would we do now? And so Conveyor set out to be our next iteration of Beanstalk in that we took a breath to say, if we were solving a problem starting today, not eight years ago, what would we be solving? right? We've learned a lot, but also the world looks different, right? And so we sat down and said, we're going to rethink the problem. We had to rethink it now. And we, we just took on a very ambitious project where we really believed that we could help make software development easier. Conveyor was supposed to be a human way of building software. And it was called Conveyor because the idea was you can plug and play the different pieces of your development process, and in a human way, it would just run. So we, we took on this really, really ambitious project, but we believed that we were building the next version of Beanstalk, and so therefore, we didn't need a minimally viable solution. Like we didn't need like a small thing. We had to solve a big thing. And so that meant two and a half years of just building a desktop client, because one, none of us knew how to build desktop clients. Two, building desktop clients is really hard. <laughs> so it was five years of work. We re rebuilt it twice. And we shut it down after we spent, I forget what it was, like three million, three and a half million, something like that on it. And uh, we shut it down. We committed internally to shutting it down in December 2019. And then we announced it in early year, early part of last year. Yeah. You said early on, we saw that our path forward was too much for our team. And that's a you know pretty simple statement. But what piqued my interest in that was... Um, having been involved in projects myself, even still having to lead you know projects in my day job, there is a really tough balance to figure out you know what's audacious to go after and what's just like too big for your team. So how did you make that assessment? We knew it wasn't going to work out for two reasons. One, we just kept coming back to like, oh, hey, it's the next thing. That's why people aren't signing up. We just there was no. I mean, we had we had very dedicated folks who were using it, but it was a small amount. 
And we kept making excuses for it. This feature, that feature, one more feature, you know, it's just one more integration. We're going to get there. So that was a big one where we finally realized like there's nothing else we can build. The bigger one is I looked around the room and I was like, who's having fun? And we had brought them in to talk, like tell them, like, we're going to talk about like, what's the next strategy? Like, what are we doing next? But Chris and I had secretly had a conversation. We're like, I think it's time to call it, but I want to see how the team's feeling. And so we sat everybody down around this table and I just basically kicked it off and said, who's still enjoying this and who still wants to work on it? And I let Chris go first because I wanted him to like open the space to be, to be okay with it. And he was basically, I don't, I'm not enjoying this anymore. And then we went around the room and everybody was like, well, we believe in the product. We believe in what we're trying to do. It's like, how long can you work with no validation? right? How long can you work in a vacuum? It's demoralizing. And when I went around the room and everybody was like, just, I don't, we don't know where to go from here. It feels so hard. It feels so unknown. There are more obvious ways to be successful a while bit than this thing. And just feeling kind of exhausted by it. Someone got back to me and I said, we're done and it's okay. And it's like, you know, no, no, it, we learned, we learned, thank God it's wild bit. Nobody gets fired. We figure it out. Right. We didn't bet the farm, right? Like we're okay. And that was really the thing. It's like, I mean, at at some point, the company only exists to provide fulfilling work for the people who work here. If the work's not fulfilling, I don't care about the product. It's not, it's not important anymore. Well, it's interesting too, because it's, uh, if I remember when you said you were looking in the room on Beanstalk and and people, it was growing in a way that felt very unlike you and, and people didn't seem excited. So you spun this off and then it sounds like you made the same decision on this one, but rather than you know doubling down on your bets on that, you, you just pulled the plug on the, the product in general. So this is a bit different because a lot of the product companies we have are have you know venture investment. And so there's decisions made like that. Well, it wasn't working, went to a board meeting and they said, you got to pull the plug, but you are ostensibly the board and the shareholders, you and your husband. So it's all kind of on your shoulders, but you know, throughout this and throughout you, the way you, you all both speak about wild bits, people seem to be at the core of what you do, not even just in terms of who the product's meant to help, but why bring a product to life in general? It has to be exciting for people. So why are people so important to you when it comes to building products? And I don't want to oversimplify the answer because my answer would naturally be like, how could it not be? But there's a, there's a practical reason I think we got here. And that's because we were, client, we were a services company first. So we're, we were always a company of people. And products became our own client, right? Like our own thing to do. But because we were never like, it's never, you know, a lot of cases, the companies you speak of, the the funded companies, it's a founder, co-founders, they have an idea, they get money, they assemble a team around this idea. If the idea fails, there's no company, right? It just, it's done because it was all tied around this idea, this product. Wild became first and the products came after that. So our view from a very practical standpoint is that Wildbit is a tool to enable people to live really meaningful lives and to give back in their communities and to provide something meaningful to our customers, right? So it's just, it comes very much down to humans. I mean, I don't, I can't look at a business as a means in and of itself. Like it's this, I have this analogy, I like to like, I think of a business as like a beast and it's this net, like the day it's born, it's this, it has this insatiable hunger. It wants to get bigger and fatter. It's like what it does, right? It's, it needs to grow faster, faster, bigger, fa- it's just natural, right? Like a, that's why it exists. And it's our job to put harness around it and to like rear it back and control it 
you know, in this case, the reason we've always stayed private, the reason I will never take money, right? The reason I tell the VCs to go away is because they become in control of that. And, you know, that's where you start getting this discrepancy. Like, who are we building this for? I don't build software that saves lives, right? Like, why would I, why would I double down and make people work on something they don't enjoy? What am I doing in the world, right? Like, who is that, who is that benefiting at that point? I'm not building, like, conveyor wasn't going to save people's lives. I'm not like making the world a better place. I'm hopefully building a product that makes, you know, developers lives more enjoyable, but if it doesn't exist. Nobody's worse off, but I've got, five people on my team. And then, you know, the rest of the team who are sitting there, like, it's not enjoyable. These are real humans. I can say like, I'm not making their lives better. And then what's the point? Who do you exist for? Like what, what is the actual motivation behind the work? And these products, they can't be the driving force, right? They're not real. So you have to go always past the product and like, who's actually driving here, right? It's not the product. So it's founders, it's egos, it's investors, it's debt, it's, you know, it, it insert all kinds of things, right? But it's never the actual product. It's, it's human beings that they're making, the, they're, they're making those decisions and they're making those choices to say, no, keep going, or they're making the choices to pull the plug too early, or they're making the choice to pivot or whatever that is. But there's always other motivations behind it. I'm curious how you think about it today, Conveyor. Is it a failure? Do you call it a failure? Like, is that the story that you tell in your mind? Or is it, it's just a chapter, we close that chapter, we're moving on to the next one. Like, what's your, what's your gut tell you? Not the, the PR version, but is it really a failure with, that, with this mentality? You know, it's a failure. Sure. I mean, conveyor is a failure because it took too long to get to that resolution, right? I let folks not enjoy their work for a little too long, which then caused the integration back into Wildbit to be more bumpy, right? Which caused a lot of issues there. So that's a huge failure. I think I failed similarly in that we could have been building more interesting products that would have worked, right? That's a failure. Some of brilliant people on my team were working on that, right? And and not being able to make headway and like, what's the point? The money isn't a thing. I don't care about that. I think uh, leadership failures, right? But in like in the kind of way that you get stronger from them, right? It's, they're good failures. They're, we haven't failed a product. Like that's the other thing I have to keep reminding the team. Like guys, we've built so many products and we've never failed one. So it's probably good to get here, to learn a lot from that toil, right? To learn a lot from those challenges. And on an individual basis, most of the team actually got to experience all kinds of super interesting technologies and brand new experiences, leadership experiences, all kinds of stuff that I think they're grateful for. But on a leadership level, I, yeah, there's lots of failures there. When you're bringing that back into the fold, did you find yourself having to build trust back up? Or was it a pretty good open dialogue you know, between the team and, and, and your leadership team? I'm an open book. So it's always extremely transparent. It was a very unfortunate timing. We're, we're dealing with some of this still now because we made the commitment end of December of 2019 our plan for reintegration was kind of uh, let's split you guys up, work on a three month project that would have finite, like an end so that it wasn't, you know, so you could like see something and t- touch it and like proverbially, cause we build things that you can't touch, but like, you know, have cl- customers at the end, like have a success story, spend three months doing that. And then we'll regroup and figure out like where things can happen. Well, if we remember what happened three months into 2020, <laughs> I don't, why don't, what are we talking about? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, the world went to shit and I talk about leadership failures. There's a lot that we failed over those nine months of last year where 
we needed to be making more steps towards solving that and we just prioritize other things and so there's that's a whole different podcast episode and something i'm very thinking right now that's high, highly emotional but yeah but there's a what we don't want to do is have that happen because what what ended up happening was postmark was growing into this big i mean postmark's a big product with a lot of customers which causes it to need like process and leads you know and, and like just a lot of stuff right and what we've always and i still believe is when you have these incubating products you want to remove as much of that as possible like as little overhead as possible you know postmark as a big product we have a cadence for meetings we have a way in which we plan we have templates for project plans we have all these things right which you need because you got to collaborate and we try to prioritize focus work so it takes a little bit more like planning work in conveyor it was very much like your special ops like just run right run change direction do what you got to do like just be free but what that caused was like when you're doing that for 5 years and then you like we're integrating back it's not like i had a clear like here's another special ops project you can jump into and it's not like postmark had a bunch of openings where you could clearly plug somebody in and say like here you go this is like an amazing opportunity so there's a lot of learnings in that because what we want to be able to get to is to have products at various stages of validation incubation whatever and we don't want to break it again right so we don't want people's identity to be tied to those products we don't want them to feel so isolated that when they kind of have to come in and there's a lot of learnings there's ways to fix this right there's ways to do it next time where we would probably have cycle folks through almost innovation teams you know kind of like a special ops team you know whatever you want to call it but like we're spinning our heads around can you create more structure around that so it's like that's your job but you're not tied to the thing you know and then you can like if you love a product and you want to get back into it you can kind of veer off and then somebody else comes in and so really identifying these as concrete kind of sandbox areas and then we still have these solid products that people love to work on and you know we shuffle people around that way i had to ask maybe you've thought about this but you've talked about products growing beyond who you are do you ever foresee a, a, the potential situation where a product can grow and maybe it grows so large that you won't be able to oversee it? Or do you always feel like you'll keep it at a level that's manageable? Or is there a situation where the team comes to the, I love this so much. I really just want to do this or somebody says, I want to take over and run this. Have those sorts of thoughts crossed your mind? And, and if so, what would you do? Yes, all of those thoughts. So we've had an experience where we sold a product. Uh, we had a product called DeployBots. We've sold that. And that was right around the conveyor timeframe where we basically bet everything on conveyor. And so we can't do two like similar products. So we put one away. So we've had that experience. And that's taught us a little bit about prioritization and kind of just what that means to like look at a product and say, you know what, the market's confusing. We don't know if we, we'd have to be a little bit bigger to like run it in a way that we think so. It's probably better to give it to somebody else to run. To answer your question more directly, we think a lot about, you know, is there a world in which postmark gets too big? And, you know, we don't like that. But the beautiful thing about Wildbit is I get to control that and I get to answer that. So it's what is too big, right? So then we go down this whole journey of like, well, what define too big? What does too big mean? Is it too many people? Is it too many customers? Is it because we've saturated the market so much that the only way to continue to grow it is to go to a, like a big sales org and we don't want to do that, right? Like there's a lot of ways to define that. And maybe it's the way my mind works, but I, I'm much more confident when I can like put those things on the table and like really drill down to what that means. And so in the case of Postmark, I'm like, I've got a long time until it's too big because I'm not going to do the things that I don't want to do with it. So we are able to scale 
our customers grow a lot faster than we have to grow our customer success team as an example, right? So that's a big one where I know that like we can be much bigger than we are now without feeling like we have to grow the team into some crazy thing. I've built a structure in a way where, and a brand and a product where we don't need sales, like outbound sales or any kind of like sales stuff. I just don't want to do it and we're not going to do it. And we, we have a, a ways to go before we felt like we capped out on that market and you know needed to go that route. The second part of your question though, which I think is most exciting to me is I think a lot about can Wild be, be a place where entrepreneurs can like, really kick off, right? Because I, I think a lot about entrepreneurship. Chris and I've been doing this for a long time. We've got two kids. We've got a mortgage. And entrepreneurship is hard and it's expensive and it's risky. And when you have these things like children and mortgages and things like that, it makes it much harder to start your own thing. And I think a lot about like, is there a way to create some of that inside a while bit? Like, can we find ways to, you know, you still get a salary and you get benefits, but you're working on a thing and there's some kind of ownership structure and eventually you can take it off, run with it or not, you know, and all these things. So it's a very big part of what like the 10 year strategic plan looks like is solving some of, for some of that. And also thinking like, what does entrepreneurship mean to some people and others? And that might not actually mean owning a thing outright, but like just being like a general manager of a product, right? As an example, where you get all the authority, the ownership, maybe some revenue share or whatever, but you get to work on like a thing, but you still get like the coverage of the bigger company, right? Like some of the, the silly stuff, right? Or the whatever, or the, or the extra support. So it's a big part of the vision. We have this internal kind of concept, we call it Wild but 3.0, and it's this like next 10-year strategy. And the idea is like really maximizing on individual fulfillment. And that means spending a lot of time thinking about how do we carve out career paths that are not climbing a ladder straight up, not even maybe like sideways. It's like maybe there are different ways to create, you know, talking to somebody today and kind of envisioning it almost like we're all climbing this mountain and we keep getting better at something and we should be shedding the stuff we're not no longer enjoying and we keep climbing and we're getting better and we're shedding the other stuff, right? So like that's everybody's individual journey and like can wild that support that journey as it means to them. And so like starting to like kind of develop programming and, and structure around that is really exciting to me. It just goes back to like, it's a tool, right? Wild, it's just a tool. It's a powerful tool, but it's a tool to design these things in a way that can create true fulfillment for everybody. So Christian, what did you think about that? What were your, what were your big takeaways? A uh, big takeaway, definitely appreciated the the transparency and the honesty the type of company that wildbits is 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 really unusual this one's different because it's all people first so it's like a lot of times throughout the interview she talked about how the product idea would even begin with someone's passion and then even when she talked about ending a conveyor it was really all about the lack of passion that her people had. So that's what stood out to me was how people are really at the the center of what Wildbit does with their products. I don't think we've ever seen that before. No, I mean, even just the questions that she asks herself and the team, I mean, it's it really feels it feels very it's like such an agency model, but they're building product. Because I mean, I don't think we've had any product person on the show who's like, oh, my team's not passionate anymore. You know what? Let's just let's stop this and let's move on to something else. So it's like, she's assembled these people, these amazing people. And now it's like, okay, amazing people. What great stuff can we do? As opposed to being like, she said, we're not, they're not assembling around an idea. They're assembling. It sounds like awesome people, which is kind of that agency model. You bring in great people who do great work and then you kind of set them off on solving problems. Yeah. At the core of it, 
is the requirement that you kind of need to be in control of your own destiny too. I think it's worth reiterating that for our audience that a lot of the companies we talk to are going to be funded. We've had publicly traded companies with, with shareholders, but mostly we have people that are at the venture stage. And so you do have boards and, and people you do respond to where you'd have to defend all those decisions. But with this type of company, they're completely in control of what they choose to do. And it's really refreshing to hear that come from people. And it's not to say that people aren't passionate about the other pro- products we've had on the show, but it's it's almost as if they're operating, they're building the best sort of product team they can given that context, meaning we don't have anybody overlooking. What does that mean we can do? Well, we can choose to start and kill whatever we want to do whenever we want, whenever it doesn't, when people don't feel it. So I think that's really cool. Yeah. I like the, like the really lean approach to kind of, because obviously they're not, they're not stepping into new industries all the time. She said, and I think I read this, I don't know that she said it in our interview, but they like to create products for problems they have, problems they're familiar with. That was one of the reasons I think Conveyor, you know, got shut down. You know, it's not like they're jumping into all these unknown industries that, you know, they're, they're more familiar and they have a really lean approach. Like she's talked about like kind of that like five phase innovation model with how they, they literally are validating as they go, which a great product company would do that. But kind of, it sounds like too, they're not afraid to kill things, which is, I mean, the, the I think one of the, obviously the hardest thing to do in building products. Yeah. I, we, we talked about it really briefly on the, the, the decision they made to sort of end conveyor. That's really not a trivia. I'm sure it wasn't a small decision there, even though it can just be like, oh, we did it for this reason. That's, that's hard. And I think even for our listeners, I think uh, hopefully there's something to, to take out of that, that there is something to be said about really estimating what your team can do, like any audacious goal. You know, she talked about it from a, a traditional product lens where they kind of bypass the MVP on conveyor because of the success they'd had with Beanstalk. Like, oh, we don't necessarily need to look at product market fit. We already know it's there. So there may be a one technical error there where they just overshot and tried to build something too large. And so there's, but if you look back on a decision like that, I think it makes sense to make it. If your team is experienced and you know what you're doing, maybe you don't need to do that. But um, I still think that there's something to be said about always being aware of what your team is willing and interested to do. And I don't think, I, I have a feeling that comes up in more stories that we've had on this show than we've ever really exposed. And it's something I want to look out for now is like, when do you feel like your team just not into it? <laughs> you might have people quitting or you just have people just like, I'm just doing this. And like, there's got to be some realistic time where maybe the market that's out there isn't really worth justifying where you're putting your people. But again, the structure that they have where they can shift to a new you know, product is, is really interesting. But I, I really like that, that idea that you can kind of make decisions based on you know, people's passion. That product agnostic culture, like she kept saying that product agnostic. I mean, I, it just reminds me a lot of kind of how we at Innovate Map do our work. I mean, we try to make sure that people are working on different types of clients, different size clients. Do you, are you interested in trying something different? Well, let's find that opportunity for you. So I just saw so many parallels to kind of kind of so much to that agency model. But then also there's like a little bit of venture studio happening there, but without the venture. And then it's like it's like she's taken so many pieces and parts from the way that other businesses run and kind of put together this new like, I don't know, what's a positive word for Frankenstein? What's a positive Frankenstein? Like a... Uh, we'll leave that to our listeners. Well, I think... If, well, I'm wondering... This may be a hard question to answer off, off the cuff, but do you think it's possible to take this approach inside of a... I don't want to call it traditional, conventional? I don't know what the right word is. Product company. I think that I think it is, but I think it's like... 
I would, it's like, instead of products, I would imagine it's more features or target markets, or it's like, you know, I, I think that I do think this idea exists, but just we've not seen it at this product level. So it's like, you know, you're a developer doing something specific here. Like, I'd love to be, I would love to be working on this product or, you know, su supporting this team or, you know, I think that those opportunities exist. Cause I mean, everyone we talk to, I think cares about how their people feel about the work they're doing. Everybody wants to make sure that the people you're working with feel like they're, they're doing meaningful work. So I don't think that's an unusual thing, but the ability to switch people to different products or just kill something when no one's loving it, that is a, a different capability. I also, yeah, you're, you're totally right. Probably more on the feature level. I also think people can take inspiration on, on how to involve people in decisions to kill products because I've been, you know, in, in software, we, I've been involved in products that got killed after two years and it feels very disconnected as an individual contributor. I was a lead designer on one, the decision's not up to me, which I totally understand. But at the same, at the same time, the decision is almost always made on the business business level. Like we didn't get traction or we're not going to continue invest. We're not, and, and it feels so detached from the personal side of what you, what you put into it. And in her transparency with her team to be an open book allows her to have dialogue with her team to make sure that, Hey, when we're going to close this down, it's a dialogue. And, and she even mentioned that people kind of have the choice to have at least a say in it to, to nix it. So even if the business reality is the numbers are on the wall, other people should be given the chance to also see that too. And be like, now that you've shown me these numbers, yeah, I don't know that I'm really into this. So I like that. And I think it's a good takeaway for product leaders as well. Yeah. And I think, I mean, tying it to another trend that I feel like I'm seeing and, and reading about more is like this, like tiny, these like tiny acquisitions, these like micro acquisitions that are, that are happening where smaller companies are acquiring smaller products. Yeah, in tech, we talk so much about big, big, big and grow to become the dominant player. But you and I have even talked about like this room for like the middle class of tech where it's like, okay, cool, you're going to have those. But, and we can eye roll at this word bespoke, just like everything's bespoke. But there is room for much more niche offerings, a lot of offerings that are good for, for smaller scale companies that don't have to, even, even, you know, uh, marketing software, if you think about, like even Salesforce, of course, that's the dominant CRM, but there's so many other smaller scale CRMs that are like really custom tailored for particular industries. And so to your point, that is a trend. And, and I hope, you know, more people may listen to this and see that, yeah, you could actually spin up smaller size products and build a business model that supports it. Because I think there is definitely a need for that. Continue the series with us by subscribing to wherever you get your podcasts or head on over to betterproduct.community.